Well, happy Missions Month, everybody. So excited to celebrate what God's doing in the world. And uh, as I came over here from Chicagoland area, I picked up a friend on the way. I want everyone to say, hi, Peter. Peter. Come on over here, Peter. So Peter grew up in Andhra Pradesh, India, and his village is about an hour from IREF. He was never an IREF student, but he was affected by the ministry of IREF. Um, he heard Emmanuel Rebbe's teachings, and um, you've been so blessed by IREF. So that was kind of our connection was through IREF. Um, and I just asked Peter this morning to just come up here and open up our message by praying for India. If we could just pray together for the nation of India. And I've asked him to pray in Telugu so we could, we could pray along with you. So why don't we just open this time together in prayer. And Peter, if you could just pray for India, and we'll join you in prayer. Let's pray. నిరుపరిషుద్ధపరచండిషకించండిషో నేను Everyone that came to the bingo night last night was really blessed uh, just to hear from Peter and, and some of the things that God has done in his life. Well, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Trey Moore. I'm the National Director for India Rural Evangelical Fellowship. I travel across the U.S. and share stories of what God's doing in India to raise support and prayer awareness. Um, but I thought I'd just share a little bit about myself, too, just to get to know you guys better. Lighthouse feels like a second home to me, so I feel like already so connected with this church. But my history with IREF goes back to when I was 10 years old. I actually found uh, this picture the other day of me in India, and I was handing out suckers to children up and down the streets of Repoli in India. My father took me there when I was 10. I just recently told my dad, I don't know what you were thinking. <laughs> it was uh, like a six-hour train ride. It was three flights that totaled over 18 hours, and I had my little Game Boy, and I, I just remember going to India with my dad when I was 10. Uh, I have one other picture here of my dad and I dedicating a church in India. Um, and so my history with IREF goes, goes way back. My dad uh, has kind of had this belief that rather than supporting five to ten mission organizations, he wants to support one and really go all in. He wanted to know the Rebbe family's children's birthdays, and he would send them presents, and he wanted to go there every year or every other year and just go all in in supporting one organization. And so all of our family got connected to IREF and to India through my dad's passion uh, to support this ministry. I went to Bible school. Uh, after Bible school, I was an associate pastor uh, for a few years, and then God called me to serve IREF and to raise awareness and, and to travel and bring teams to India. So I'm typically in India for about two months per year, and then I'm in the States, the other 10. And when I'm in the United States, I live in northern Illinois, kind of on the state line of Illinois and Wisconsin. I have a wife, Meg and our dog Rizzo that we treat like a child. And we have been married for two years. I think I have a picture here too of, there's 
my wife Meg and I, and there's our little dog Rizzo, who I all of a sudden missed just looking at that picture. So great. Um, so I'm really excited about our, our time together this morning as, as we kick off Missions Month. You know, there's, there's sermons that speak to your intellect, and they, they help you understand the Word of God when you open up Scripture and, and you teach the Word of God, and we grow in our understanding of Christ, which is biblical. There's also sermons that you come to church, and it speaks to your heart. It speaks to your spirit, and something's awakened inside of us. And I, I feel like this message that the Lord's given me to share with Lighthouse is more of one of the heart messages today. We're going to get into the story of David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, but we're going to really talk about fighting the spiritual battle that we all live in today in America. And so I actually want just to get us in the mood for the spiritual fight. I've got a clip from Lord of the Rings. Are there any Lord of the Rings fans here this morning? All right. So this clip will kind of get us in the mood. The, the clip is from Return of the King, and the soldiers are about to go into battle to fight the enemy. The enemy looked big, it looked strong, and you can see as we watch this clip, there's fear on the face of many of these soldiers, but then Aragorn comes and he calls them to fight. So let's watch this clip before we jump into our message. might come a day when the courage of men may fail, but it is not this day. And you can see in that clip, there's this change in the expression of the soldiers from fear to go and fighting this big, strong enemy to it is not this day. And so today I want to talk about fighting the spiritual battle here on the earth. And I believe that there's something within us that resonates with clips like this, with videos like this, because we serve a God who is a God of war. God is a jealous God. He is a fighter. It says in Jeremiah that he is a dread warrior. And so we, we serve this God, and we, he calls us into this spiritual battle to fight for the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but when I think of warrior, I can't help but think of King David. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, there was this song that was going throughout all of Jerusalem, and the song went like this, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. It made Saul furious. David conquered nations, he killed lions and bears and Goliath, oh my. <laughs> he, was, he was a mighty, mighty warrior, and he was anointed by God. When we look at the life of David, there's really two moments in David's life that were pinnacle. You have the story of Goliath, David's greatest victory, 
And we have the story of Bathsheba, one of David's greatest failures. And what I want to do this morning as a church is I want to try to compare and contrast these two stories. And I want to see what was different in David between Goliath and Bathsheba. What changed between the two situations? So we're going to look at Goliath first. And if you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. So I'll kind of set up the the scene. Goliath is challenging Israel, the army of Israel. And he's saying, let's battle to the death one-on-one. Your soldier versus me. If your soldier wins, the Philistines will serve Israel. But if I win, the Israelites will become servants to the Philistines. Every morning and every evening, Goliath comes down into this valley and he makes this declaration against Israel. And the Israel soldiers are terrified. No one wants to fight this man. And this continues for 40 days. So then we see in this story in 1 Samuel 17 that Jesse, David's father, he sends David to bring bread and cheese to his brothers on the battlefield. So David is arriving on the battlefield. He's got food for his brothers. And then it says in verse 23, as he, David, talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. David heard him. And then what happens is David begins to talk to the army and he's going, who is this Philistine that he would defy the Lord? That he would talk against the nation of Israel? We are the people of God. Who is this man that would talk against us? And these terrified soldiers start to talk to one another. And all of a sudden word gets to King Saul that there's this shepherd boy, David, that's Not happy that Goliath is saying this about the people of God. One thing leads to another. David begins to meet with King Saul. And before you know it, David has volunteered to fight Goliath. Why was David sent to the battlefield? David was Uber Eats. He was bringing food to his brothers. He was making a delivery. He was going home. David, you are a shepherd boy. You got to come back and watch your sheep over in your fields. But David heard someone defying God and speaking out against the Lord, and he was not okay with it. I love that phrase that David heard him in verse 23. So let's look at this battle of David versus Goliath. I'm going to start in verse 43. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the fields. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Why did David fight this battle? So that all the earth would know there is a God in Israel. 
We all know the story of David and Goliath. David takes the slingshot. He hits Goliath in the head. Goliath falls down. David runs up to Goliath. He doesn't have a sword, so he takes Goliath's sword. He cuts off Goliath's head and turns around to the nation of Israel and shows them that the head of the giant that you are all afraid of and terrified of is dead. And it says later in the chapter that all of the Israelites began to pursue the Philistines and they overtook them. One man's victory led to an entire nation experiencing freedom from fear that had held them captive. Such an amazing story. And we love that David's victory was not just for David, but it was for the nation of Israel. But I want to look back at a couple of verses, and I, I think it's important to look at verse 46. Because verse 46, this is David talking to Goliath. And he says, this day... Everybody say this day. This day day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. The Israelites had been waiting for 40 days, every morning, every evening. If I was David, I would have come up, you know, Saul, give me a week. I think I got an idea, but I might die. So I'm going to really pray about this. I'm going to think this through. This is a big deal. Just give me a week. I'll come back to you. But I think I want to fight Goliath. Right? That would be such an easy way to go about this. But David says, no, this day, you will not mock the people of God for one more day. It ends right now. He says, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And he says it again in verse 47. And this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air. What's at stake in us in pursuing victories For the kingdom of God is not personal recognition, but it's something more precious and valuable. It's that God's glory would be displayed throughout the world. Every nation knew that the God of Israel was the one true God because of this victory over the Philistines. Word spread throughout the world. This young shepherd boy, David, defeated Goliath. His God is the true God. God doesn't want to just win. He wants to send a message. Look at Colossians 2.5. It says this about Christ. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them. Everybody say public spectacle. Public spectacle of them on the cross. Jesus dominated the powers of darkness on the cross. There was no chance for them. And the people got to experience this and see this. So this was a life-changing moment for David. But now we look at the story of Bathsheba. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you want to turn there with me. David and Bathsheba, one of his greatest failures. And I'm going to preface this by just telling you a little bit about 2 Samuel chapter 10. So in 2 Samuel 10, Joab is in this battle with the Syrians. Things are getting really intense. The Syrians are calling additional troops. And in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17, it says, when it was told David about what's happening of all these troops coming, he gathered all Israel together. He crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. And then it says in verse 18, and the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed of the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shabak, the commander of their army. David is a mighty warrior. He is the king of Israel. They are conquering nations. They are going out to battles. And now we get to 2 Samuel 
chapter 11. Let's look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. Who's the king of Israel? King David. David is the king of Israel in 2 Samuel 11, and it's the time for kings to go out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Let's continue. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It was a time for kings to go out to war. David had just had great victory over the Syrians, but David remains in Jerusalem. That continues in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon that David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Story continues. David calls Bathsheba. He's intimate with her. He realized she's married to this man, Uriah. And long, a lot of things happen, but long story short, he ends up having Uriah put on the front line of the battlefield to have Uriah killed, and he takes Bathsheba as his wife. This is horrendous. This is tragic. This is a huge moral failure in David's life. So what was the difference? Why did David fall? Why did David go to Goliath? He was called to bring bread and cheese to his brothers. In 2 Samuel 11, what was David called to do? He was called to go to war. It was a time for kings to go to war. But you see in verse 2, it says, Late one afternoon, David arose from his couch. David's in Jerusalem on his couch late one afternoon when he should be off to war with Joab and the army. You know, many times it's not how life comes at us, it's how we come at life. And I want to say that one more time. It's not how life comes at us, it's how we come at life. A lot of us as followers of Christ are waiting for a mission to come our way. We're waiting for that moment where all of a sudden we hear the mission impossible. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. We go, God, I've been waiting for this. Rather than waking up every morning and going, God, what do you have for me today? What mission do you have for me today? How can I serve you today? I'm not sitting back passive waiting for something to come. God, I'm going to seek out your will for this day of my life. Let me ask you a question. What if David was tempted with Bathsheba on the day that he killed Goliath? David's down, he's picking up the smooth stones from the brook, and he's getting ready to fight Goliath, and he looks up and he sees Bathsheba. How would David respond on that day? Let me flip it. What if David was tempted with Goliath on the afternoon that he fell to Bathsheba? David's sitting on his couch one afternoon, and people start screaming and goes, what's going on? They say, there's a giant. He's coming in. He has 150 pounds of armor. He's almost 10 feet tall. He's walking into the palace right now. What would David do in that moment? I don't think Bathsheba is a harder test than Goliath for David. So why did David fall to Bathsheba? And it's the word that I really want to focus on in our message this morning. It's the word passivity. David was passive. He was passive in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now here's the definition of passivity. Definition of passivity is lacking energy or will, not active or operating. Lacking energy or will, passive, not operating. 
we were talking to a friend the other day, and um, I was with my parents, and they said, uh, yeah, we're from Fierce Church. We're a fiery church, and we, we call ourselves Fierce Church. And my mom right away started laughing, and the lady said, what's wrong? And I said, man, I, Fierce just sounds like a lot for me in this season of my life. <laughs> She's like, I'm just tired. Like, Fierce Church sounds like a big commitment. And I think a lot of times we, we feel that way of followers of Christ that we've become passive. We're kind of just lacking energy when it comes to our faith. And we hear things like the fight and we got to go fight the spiritual battle. And we're just going like David. We're like, man, I just kind of want to stay on the couch right now. We're kind of in our spiritual sweatpants. Are you tired in your walk with Christ? Are you lacking energy when it comes to spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading God's word and repentance and confession? It's possible that passivity has snuck into your life. When I was in India in January, we, we took a team and I spent the month of January in India. And I got to minister to 300 pastors and we're sharing with these pastors. And this was a message that the Lord really gave to me while I was in India and I shared it at the IRF school. And Emmanuel, the director, said, you have to share this with the pastors. There's so much passivity right now in India. And so we did two sessions. The first session, I shared the same message that I'm sharing this morning. And in between the, the message, there's a pastor that comes up for prayer. There's about 300 pastors, and one of them comes up and he asks me for prayer. So I step off the stage with my translator, and we hear his story. And he said, brother, two years ago, I started preaching in my village, and people were coming to Christ. It was amazing. He said about a year ago, the radical Hindus in our area started learning about all these people that were coming to Jesus because of my faith and my ministry. And so one day as I was coming home from church, they ambushed me and they had physically like, beat me to a pulp. He said it took me weeks to recover and be able to get back to church. And they said, if you keep preaching the gospel, this is going to happen again. He said, about nine months ago, three months later, it happened again. I was beaten for my faith. And then he looked at me and he started to tear up. And he said, just recently, a few months ago, my 16-year-old and my 18-year-old children were coming home from school. And these people realized that beating me wouldn't stop me from preaching, so they started to beat my children. And I ran into my children and said, what happened to you guys? And they go, Dad, it's because you're preaching. They said, if you keep doing this, they're going to beat us. And so he goes, brother, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. So he closes his eyes and he's ready to pray. And I put my hand on his shoulder, lighthouse. I had no words to say. I was like, I don't even know what to pray. So I looked at my translator and I said, can you ask him what he wants me to pray for him? So the translator asked him, he goes, you know, what do you want him to pray? I said, I want two things. Number one, I want my children's faith to be stronger than ever before because of the persecution that they're experiencing. I was like, wow. He said, the second thing that I want is that the people, the radical Hindus that are hurting our family, that they would know about the love of Jesus by the way that we're responding to them. I was really glad that I asked him what he wanted me to pray for him because I was about to pray for justice. God, silence those people, get rid of them, make it easy for this guy. This sounds really hard for him. God, just take all of that burden off of him. The cross that he's carrying for you, Lord, just take that off of him. Don't make him carry that anymore. He said, no, I want my children's faith to be deeper through this. And our conversation continued. And I told him, I said, you know, I just want to be honest with you. I don't know if I could do what you're doing. I just said, to, to experience the persecution that you're experiencing and for your children to be experiencing that, it would be really hard for me to continue to preach the gospel. 
And he turned that on his head and he said to me, he said, brother, I don't know if I could do what you're doing. I said, what do you mean? And he said, in America right now, there is so much materialism. There is so much entertainment from sports and all the activities that I hear about in America. It sounds so hard to live for God in America. And then he said this phrase, which I have up here. He said, passivity and materialism have taken out more Christians than persecution. And he had just heard that sermon on passivity. He said, passiveness and materialism are taking out way more Christians than persecution. Persecution's refining their faith. And I just want to confess to you this morning that this sermon that I'm preaching this morning on passivity is a sermon that I'm working through and repenting and seeking God and going, God, I don't want to be passive. The NBA playoffs are on right now and I'm such a big basketball fan. It can be so easy for me to go, oh, what's the game tonight? Oh, who's playing tomorrow? And all of a sudden I lose weeks of my life because I'm staring at a TV every night. While in India, these people are gathering with their village every night, praying and seeking God together, and I'm losing ground in my spiritual walk, and I wake up in two weeks, and I'm passive again, and I'm dull, and I'm lethargic. I've been afraid of being persecuted by some of my unsaved family and friends that when we sit around the table and they bash Christians, I just kind of sit there quietly because I don't really want to have that conversation or make them angry at me. And I'm missing out on persecution because I'm being passive in my faith. And so since January, I've been on this four or five month journey of just seeking the Lord, getting in the fight again. And so I'm saying all of that just to tell you guys that what I'm preaching, I'm working through as well. I'm maybe a little bit farther along the road and just asking God to shake me from passivity. I really believe that today I have a burden that passivity is taking hold in the Western church. I think today ranks as one of the most passive times in the church in America. I believe people want to escape more than they want to overcome and fight. I believe people want deliverance more than they want faithful daily dedication to the Lord. I was talking to a boy a few weeks ago after a sermon and he said, I just want to be set free from lust. I struggle so much. There's so many times I'm trying to fight against lust and I just want to be delivered. I just told him, I said, that's the American way. We want the fast food. God, I don't want to be tempted anymore. I don't want to fight. I just want to be delivered so I don't have to fight or fight this temptation. And so I said, God might be calling you to fight against this for the rest of your life. We're human. We have flesh. We have to repent. We have to come back. And we're going to pray that God delivers you of this temptation, but there might be a very real chance that you are going to have to pick up your sword and start fighting. That when you're tempted, you're going to have to start texting some friends and really begin to fight against this rather than just, please just deliver me, Lord. I don't want to be tempted anymore. And there's a both and to that. We pray and we believe for deliverance, but we also pick up our spiritual swords and we fight the spiritual battle. Amen? Amen. So many of us can be like Israel. We're waiting like uh, the Israelites for someone like David to come and fight Goliath for us when the Lord has called us to fight. I want to look at the example of Jesus because Jesus was not passive at all. After Jesus was anointed and baptized, uh, he was a man on fire. He did not wait for people to recognize him. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus, he walks into the tabernacle. They have this daily reading in the tabernacle. So you would end at a certain point, and then the next person would pick up the scroll, and they would continue to read the daily reading. But look at what it says in Luke chapter 4. 
verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and Jesus found the place where it was written. So Jesus looks for, it's Isaiah 61 that he quotes. And this is what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is saying the spirit of the Lord is on me to fight, to attack. Jesus is saying these things through that little section. He's saying through my life, the poor will hear good news. Broken hearts will be healed. The captives will be set freed. The blind will see. Those who are oppressed will be unchained and they will be delivered. Amen? Does this sound passive to you? (laughs) This was a trumpet call. Jesus is saying from this moment on, I am on the offense. Jesus would go into villages and demons would ask him, are you here to torment us? He would go from village to village to village proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and many people were delivered and set free during his three to three and a half years of ministry. Here's a few more examples of Jesus's life. Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It doesn't say Jesus came to defend against the works of the devil, to push the works of the devil back. It says he came to destroy the works of the devil. Let's look at the next one. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus sought after lost people. This wasn't laid back. This wasn't Jesus going, well, if somebody asks me about my faith, I'll tell them about it. He sought after the lost. He looked for the open doors, those opportunities to share. One more, Matthew 16, 18, he says, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail or defend against it. Who's on the offense? Jesus. God has called us to fight. Before I was an associate pastor, I was a youth pastor for two years, and I had a lot of situations. Every year, the seniors in our class, their parents would come up to me and they'd say, Trey, I'm really nervous about my kids going to college. There's so many attacks at universities, and it's hard to keep your faith. And they said, I'm concerned that my child's not ready to defend their faith. Teach my kid to defend their faith. And I, I was thinking, teach your kids to defend their faith. I'd like to teach them to attack, to take ground spiritually. And one of the questions I'd always ask parents is, honest question, when your kid comes back from college in four years, would you be okay with them being at the same place spiritually that they are right now? And almost every time they said, yes, that'd be amazing. I said, I think you're actually looking at it wrong because universities need Jesus and your kid is a missionary to this place. And when they come, they might come back in four years on fire for Jesus, firm in their faith. We want them to grow in their faith in these four years, not just survive. And that's a passive mindset. That's an example of a passive mindset, just to survive while they're at college. 
I, was, I heard a story of a, a father who sent his kid to study in Europe, and the father was talking to his son, and he was really nervous because the intellectual school, he thought, these people are going to tear my son's faith apart. So he told his son as they were leaving, he said, son, don't forget the book of Jonah. Son turned and said, what do you, forget the book of Jonah? And he said, this might be one of the first stories that they start to tell you about this guy getting swallowed by a whale. Are you kidding me? How can that be real? He said, don't forget the book of Jonah. God is a real God. This is a real living and active book. Don't you doubt this for one second. The son goes to school and he comes back a few years later. The father runs up to the son and he goes, son, did you, did you forget the book of Jonah? Do you remember this book? And the son goes, yeah, I remember the book of Jonah. I'm, I'm okay, dad. He goes, but you forgot the book of Jonah. Father goes, what are you talking about? And he goes, dad, when you told me that a few years ago, I want you to look, just look in your Bible for the book of Jonah. So the dad starts flipping through his Bible. He's confused. He goes to the table of contents. He finds, okay, the book of Jonah. He goes to the page and he realizes that the three pages comprising the book of Jonah had been ripped out of his Bible. And the son said, you forgot the book of Jonah. And he said, I did it before I went away. And he said, what's the difference whether I lose the book of Jonah through studying under non-believers or you lose the book of Jonah through living a passive Christian life? How do we know if we're passive, right? We have this phrase and some of us, it's like, I, I don't really know. I don't know if I'm living a passive Christian life. Well, this morning to kind of help us navigate that, I've got four characteristics that make uh, maybe a person a, a passive Christian. And again, I'm going to give us that definition just to help us remember. Passive would be lacking energy or will, not operating or active. So here's number one. Passive people are vulnerable to temptation. We all experience temptation, but if you're, I believe if you're living a passive Christian life, you are vulnerable much more to temptation than when you're in the fight and you're seeking the Lord. I've noticed for myself I fall into this, this one a lot after I speak. I travel a lot and do speaking and preaching, and I have a mission. So this week it was like, I am praying for you guys. Every morning I'm praying for this service. I'm praying for our time together that the Lord would speak to you. I'm looking at these notes. I'm spending time in God's word. And tomorrow morning I get home and I'm like, whew, I got to rest. You know what rest means? It means TV shows and sitting around and sweatpants for the day. And all of a sudden, within three days, this spiritual vigor that I was living with becomes this dull, lethargic Christian life. And it's resting well. It's spending time in the presence of God and allowing him to minister to me by his spirit. And I believe if you're experiencing a lot of temptation in your life, that there might be a bit of passivity in your walk with Christ. Number two, passive people are often found blaming. Everyone say blaming. Blaming. Well, the reason I'm like this is because of my parents, my lack of gifting, my kids. I can't fight Goliath because fill in the blank. Passive people have this I'm fine where I'm at attitude, and they use these kind of blaming or excuses to get out of it. I think of Adam and Eve, right? God comes to Adam and Eve he says, what did you guys do? Adam says, well, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, God. Blaming. And God looks at Eve. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? 
And the woman says, well, the serpent, I mean, it's just the constant. It's, this is a story as old as time. We justify our sin. We blame other things rather than just, God, I messed up. I repent. I confess this was wrong. This was against you, Lord. Break me out of passivity, Lord. I want to be back in the fight. We stop blaming and justifying our sin or our lifestyle. Number three, passive people see problems rather than opportunities. Gap finders and gap fillers. Passive people love finding the gaps. Those in the fight want to help fix it. They want to, they want to fill in the gap. I just want to tell you a fact this morning, Lighthouse. This is one of my favorite facts. I can't believe it. We are alive in 2023, you and I. And right now, at this time in history, more people are coming to Jesus than any time in the history of the world. That's amazing. That's a stat. That is a fact that more people are coming to Jesus than any time in the world. And a passive person might say, well, Trey, that's Africa. Asia. Stats actually show that America is going down. Some people are even saying we're in a post-Christian society. People are running away from the faith in America like never before, Trey. That's, you know, that's a good fact globally, but not here in our country. That's what a passive person would say. Somebody in the fight would say, what an opportunity. You're telling me that our country is drifting and we live here? Come on, let's get in it. Let's get in the fight. America's just too far gone. Wouldn't that make it the best place for preaching the gospel? According to Global Christianity Report, there are fewer atheists in the world today than in 1970. Praise God. That's amazing. 165 million atheists in 1970 and 147 atheists today. And may I just say that 147 million atheists today are too many. 147 million too many. May the Lord open up eyes to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is reaching the unreached right now. In 1900, more than half the world's population was unreached. That percentage is now 28%. I can tell you with IREF that in the last five years, we have planted three churches in villages that have never heard the gospel before. And many of these villages, over half the village has come to faith in the last five years. That's amazing. And a passive person just kind of sits back and goes, yeah, but uh, someone in the fight goes, this is incredible. We are living during this moment in history, and we get to be a part of it as followers of Christ. So let me just review real quick. Passive people are vulnerable to temptation. Passive people are often found blaming. Passive people see problems rather than opportunities. And our last one, passive people tend to live either in the past or in the future. I think some people gain passivity just because of the time that's gone on. You know, 2 Samuel 11, David's older. He's tired. He's weary. He's fought so many battles. He was just coming off this battle with the Syrians, and he just looks at Joab and goes, Joab, you go. <laughs> I'm so tired. And I think sometimes in our life, we, we kind of just get older, and we just get tired, and we just become passive naturally. You know, Reinhard Bonnke is a man in Africa, and he 
passed away a few years ago, but he has led millions of people to Christ. In his 70s, Reinhard Bonnke was traveling all across India preaching, and they, they saw so many come to Christ. And I love this quote by Reinhard Bonnke. He said, I hate the term youthful zeal. I hate the term youthful zeal. You do not have to be youthful to have zeal or passion. And he, he was recognizing a lie that's been placed on so many people to say, oh, that person's younger. You can just see their zeal and passion. They got that youthful zeal. And he goes, no, I'm 70 years old. I'm traveling throughout Africa. I am on fire for Jesus, and I want to see people come to know him. So a couple closing thoughts. As we talk about passivity and, and how we respond to this, the first thought is we must live every day must live ready to fight every day. David woke up hearing, son, bring food to your brothers. But David's circumstances did not dictate his fighting spirit. Even though people told David, hey, go deliver food to your brothers, he was ready to show up and respond. We must live ready to fight every day. The biggest battles in our life come on ordinary days. We don't know when these moments are going to come or present ourselves, but we have to be ready to fight. Number two, do not mistake passivity for peace. Like Israel, we often don't feel the war because we're sitting on the sidelines. As long as Goliath is taunting the Lord, there is no peace. I'm going to say that one more time because this is a really big one. Don't mistake passivity for peace. A gentleman in our church came up to me a few months ago and he said, Trey, I just need to confess this to a brother. I've been struggling with pornography for the last two years. I said, okay. I think we really need to talk to your spouse and we need to have, you need to confess that to her. And he goes, dude, my marriage is so good right now. That's the last thing I need to do. I said, what? And he's like, my marriage is going great. If my wife found out that I've been struggling with this the last two years, she'd realize that maybe this is just a facade that it's actually not going as good as we think it is. And I told him this. I said, as long as Goliath is on the sideline, for him specifically, it was this addiction. Your marriage isn't going to thrive. You are mistaking peace for passivity. You are being passive and you're calling it peace, but that's actually not peace. You need to deal with this sin. You need to get in the fight. And he would rather just kind of push it off to the side and try to just navigate it without having to confront it with his spouse. And for some of us here, we are saying things are at peace, but the reality is, is there's some real stuff that we need to work through as followers of Christ and get into the fight and bring those things to a brother or sister in Christ, a spouse or a friend. Do not mistake passivity for peace. Israelites said, as long as I can go to bed, I'm good. I might just stay here at this camp the rest of my life. Goliath every morning going out and taunting them, and they just go back to their tent every night and go to bed. As long as we don't fight that guy, we're not going to die. They were mistaking passivity for peace. Why not this day? What are we waiting for? You know, I, I worked at a, a Fortune 500 company doing sales for a few years, and I just started having this idea of, like, I want to lead my coworkers to Christ. So I had this thing, I said, Bible study, discover who God is. And we did this in the conference room. This was after working there for a year and a half. And every Wednesday during lunch, we'd open it up and maybe three people would come and we'd do it once a week. And this guy, John Savala came one time. I'll never forget it. We read Romans 8 and he read about the love of God. And in the office, he started to sob. He said, Trey, I don't know what's going on right now. I'm feeling the love of God. This guy's in his 40s, kids, family, never experienced the love of Jesus before. And we sat in that, I just remember sitting in that conference room for like 30 minutes, and after a while, he just was so emotional. I said, John, can you try to explain to me what you're feeling right now? 
This is incredible. This is everything I dreamed of when I started this. He said, Trey, to be completely honest with you, I'm feeling two things right now. I said, yeah. And he goes, on one hand, I am overwhelmed with the love of Jesus. He's real and he loves me. But he said, on the other hand, and this just was a knife into my heart. He goes, I've known you for a year and a half and you've never told me this. He said, why wouldn't you tell me about Jesus? I've known you for so long. And he goes, I'm just struggling with that. And he looked at me and I had to be accountable to why I hadn't told my coworker about Jesus. And I had to repent. I was ready to make an excuse or to blame and to go, well, John, you know, it's hard in the corporate world. It's a big company. I could get fired. And I just had to confirm and say, John, I am so sorry that I haven't told you sooner. I am so sorry. When we live a passive Christian life, so many people around us are missing out on the love of God that has changed our hearts, and we get the opportunity to share this love with the world around us. I'll close my sermon with a story of, of Bhavani. It's a student at IREF. She's one of my favorite kids. She leads our prayer time at IREF. Uh, Bhavani is going to graduate this year from our nursing school. I've gotten to know her for the last few years, and Bhavani comes from a Hindu family, and she got saved in 2019. And she told me recently, she confessed to me, she said, I got to tell you, I was a secret Christian for two years. She said, I never told my family that I came to faith because I was terrified of what they would say. And in 2021, she came home, she had been baptized, she was fully serving the Lord. And she said, almost like this coming out to her family of saying, I need to sit you all down and tell you something. And she said, I am in love with Jesus. He has changed my life. And I believe that the word of God is truth and that there's only one God, and it's Jesus Christ. Her family was shocked, and later that year, her mom got in an accident, and she was paralyzed, and the entire village blamed Bhavani for her mom's injury. They said, if you didn't become a Christian, your mom would have never been paralyzed, but now the Hindu gods are angry at us, and they said, they've paralyzed your mom because of your faith, and I looked at Bhavani on this last trip, and I said, I am so sorry and she looked back at me with the biggest smile, and she goes, brother, it is such an honor to represent Jesus to my village. And again, I get this, like, they just think differently over there. I'm, like, saying sorry that you're being persecuted, and she's going, it's an honor. The last year, Bhavani's two brothers have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They love Jesus. I've met one of her brothers, and he is on fire for Jesus. His life has been changed by the love of Christ. And as I was writing this message this week, I was thinking about Bhavani and was thinking about what if she stayed silent? What if she was a secret Christian the rest of her life and she got to enjoy the love of God just for herself and never shared it with anyone else? It'd be a beautiful life to receive the love of God, but she would have never had that opportunity to see her brothers and hopefully, Lord willing, her entire family come to faith in Christ. May we not be a passive people May we not be like Israel, sitting on the sideline, hoping that someone comes and fights the spiritual battles for us, but may we be a church that picks up our sword of truth and the spirit and change Kalamazoo and go on mission for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are not a passive God. Think of your reckless love and the way that you have moved heaven and earth to have our hearts. We are amazed by the radical love that you have for us, oh God. And so right now, Lord, we just ask that you would make us a church of radical lovers of Jesus. 
The people around would see such a difference in our lives. They'd go, what in the world? They are not a passive people. They are in love with Jesus. And that we would be ones that speak truth and wisdom and guidance into the world around us. You'd use us, Lord, for your kingdom, for your glory, and for your name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.